I have often said that learning to see with the eye of the poet is perhaps one of our highest human callings on earth. To live with that level of perception and attention, to be the kind of person that notices with full embodied presence what is occurring, what is happening, the miracle of life unfolding all around us. If you're a fan of this show, you already know that I'm a huge fan of poetry. When I read poetry, what I find happens is that I am entering into a sort of unknowing of reality, or at least unknowing reality in its normal operating system, the way that we tend to move through life at this pace of busyness and ambition and tasks and like, you know, get shit done mode. When I enter into the pace and rhythm, the intentionality of such meaningful, beautiful, thoughtful words strung together on a page in a poem, it's as if I am remembering a whole different way of being, of relating, of feeling, of experiencing life as a human being that is connected to everything around me, always. Art is always this kind of portal opening magic, but poetry stands as a unique form of casting spells, the kind that open up those hidden worlds and allow us to step through the veil of ordinary life into extraordinary perception. Gideon Hugh is a poet and an environmentalist who lives in Berkshire, England. In his own words, he's at his happiest when walking up a mountain, drinking coffee in his garden, or climbing trees with his daughter. His two volumes of poetry are titled Devastating Beauty and his most recent release, Rumors of Light. But one of the reasons I'm most excited to have this conversation with Gideon is that he's very much in the thick of life as a young dad and as a person in the first half of life, you know, building and trying to sort it all out like we all are. So often we tend to think of a poet like a sage in a cave as if, you know, they have endless time to stroll through natural bucolic settings and then they sit down to write in the quiet little rose-covered cabin in which they live, you know, and, and so we just assume that their lives are entirely other than ours. So of course they can perceive beauty the way that they do. But Gideon reminds us that no, poets are just as much in the shit and thick of life as the rest of us. And so we too can learn how to be artists the way that they are. We too can learn how to perceive the realm of hidden things like a poet does. So with that, I invite you to enjoy this conversation with Gideon Hugh on episode one of season two of Unknowing. So Gideon, you are familiar with my show, so I think you know how this goes because we're friends. So I usually like to begin each episode by asking my guest about the map that they were handed in childhood. And as you know, we're given a particular set of beliefs or experiences that really create the landscape that we begin our journeys on. So I just want to begin by asking you about the landscape that you were handed as a kid. Mm. Well, first of all, thanks so much for, for inviting me to be on. Uh, I know that's the, just a polite thing to say at the start of a podcast, but genuinely this is just this kind of um, amazing and, and slightly surreal experience. So in terms of the, the map I was handed, I suppose it begins with what you'd call quite a, quite a privileged upbringing. So I was raised in this very pleasant suburb in the south of England, middle-class family, very kind of safe, comfortable, quite idyllic in, in a number of ways and went to these posh schools and actually the, the kind of upbringing that you, you might end up thinking, hang on, this guy could grow up to be a bit of an ass. Um, but hopefully that's not the case. And I think that something that maybe pulled me out of that safe, comfortable experience in part was my, my parents' upbringing. So although by the time I came along, they were kind of very much middle class, and they both came from more of a working class background. My dad, uh, given up by his mother when, when he was just a baby, uh, don't think he was treated very well. 
by his adopted parents. So he, he left his family when he was 16, joined the army. And I think as a, as a result of that, developed this way of looking at life that was very work and discipline focused, which definitely ended up having an impact on me, but probably in the opposite kind of way, because I, I rebelled against that, <laughs> that kind of way of, of doing life. And then my mother, on the other hand, her grandparents were refugees. So they were Ashkenazi Jews living in uh, what's now Ukraine, what was then part of the Russian Empire. Although the way things are going, it, it might be part of the Russian Empire again, um, but we'll, we'll leave that alone. Um, so as at many points and places in history, there was quite widespread persecution of the Jews uh, in Eastern Europe at that time, kind of early 20th century. So there's this large movement of people, um, a lot to the US and, and kind of a quite a few to the UK as well. So they settled in the north of England in a city called Leeds. And although my, my mother converted to Christianity when she was a student, she still very much retained those roots and that, that sense of identity. Uh, but I was very much raised as a Christian and kind of in, in keeping with this middle-class upbringing we had, it was very much uh, a middle-class church, Church of England. It was kind of the church of the middle class here. And again, quite a a safe and comfortable kind of faith tradition, um, very much about preserving the status quo, kind of conservative, small c, keeping kind of traditions alive and not rocking the boat too much, not saying anything too kind of controversial, just this kind of nice little uh, community where everyone kind of looks the same as you do, everyone kind of talks in the same way and everyone kind of believes the same things too. So that was kind of my childhood, really. Uh, and things started to go a bit differently when I arrived at, at secondary school. So this is when I was 13, 14. And at that time, I was, I was quite proud of my, my Jewish heritage and quite happily tell people uh, about it and tell people I was Jewish. As a child, that was kind of exciting to me. Um, and we lived with my grandmother, kind of very strong, proud Jewish woman, she had a number of strokes when she was quite young, so she couldn't really talk or walk properly. But I remember every Christmas, I'd wish her happy Christmas and, and it would take her a while because of her, her speech problems. She'd reply, happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Even if it wasn't Hanukkah, she'd still say it. And it was kind of her way of saying, I think, yeah, Christmas is nice, but this, mm-hmm. is, this is who you really are. And so I think that affects me in quite a strong and powerful way, even if I didn't realise it at the time. But then when I got to secondary school and was a teenager, people would start to mm. tease me about it. And then that kind of teasing became something a bit more serious. So, you know, get jokes about the Holocaust, you know, get called you fucking Jew uh, and things like that. Which at the time, being a little naive, um, kind of just put down to bog standard bullying. Yeah. Which was, you know, pretty rife in that kind of school. It's a boarding school, all boys. And obviously looking back now, you can kind of see what actually um, you'd classify that as kind of racial abuse. So I <laughs> I quickly learned, and the message that was kind of given to me was, well, maybe this isn't mm. something you should be proud of. Maybe actually this is something to cause shame and that you should hide. And And I did start hiding it. And I'm kind of aware of my, you know, my privilege in that I just look like a, another white guy. Um, so I, I can and I could hide it. So yeah, I just kind of fell back on my Christianity and stopped identifying as a Jew at that time. Uh, and then throughout my teenage years, things kind of kept falling apart slightly. My dad left our family when I was 16, um, which obviously caused a huge amount of pain and uh, and hurt across the family. And not long after that, both my parents became quite ill at separate times, cancer scares. And I was sort of put in this position where for most of my life, people have been looking after me and, you know, looking after me pretty well. And then because of this stuff that was happening and some other things as well, uh, suddenly I felt very much alone and I was kind of looking after looking after my mother, looking after myself in this kind of very different situation. So it kind of made me spiral a bit uh, and I became very depressed in my late teens. 
And when you come from a, a faith tradition, like I did with, with Christianity, and you're, as you're quite young, you're faced with these kind of disruptive things, it could either go one or two ways. You could either just say, well, well, that's a load of rubbish, that didn't work, mm-hmm. or you could double down on it. And that's what I did with my Christianity then. Uh, I really leaned into it and became very much a, a card-carrying evangelical and, you know, in, in deconstruction circles or, or whatever you want to call it, sometimes you want to look back and think, well, how did I believe all those things? Or how could I have been that person and, and part of that kind of thing? But to get cynical about the beliefs you once had. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But really, there's a real sense, and that's what I needed at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can't beat ourselves up for part of the journey we were on back then, you know. It's a process, and and yeah, it, at the time, it, I'm very hesitant to use the word "saved" in an evangelical context. But there's a real way in which it did because it it gave me a, a community and something solid, something solid to grasp onto when everything else felt very much not solid. Mm. Um, but then, in, in terms of then, I guess transcending that, moving away from that, I always had this slight itch with my evangelicalism which maybe unconsciously came from kind of my Jewish heritage, but I always had a problem uh, with the concept of hell and kind of Christian exclusivism. Um, Often it was just in the background because when you're in a very, I guess, quite conservative evangelical community, obviously thinking outside of the paradigm isn't always encouraged. And I didn't want to you know, come across as heretical or whatever or rebelling against this thing was was such a big part of of who I was at that time but it was always there kind of in the background and then things kind of came to a head slightly with that when my grandmother died and not long after I was speaking to a friend a Christian friend and she asked me the question was your grandmother a Christian oh boy which on the face of it kind of seems like this oh it's a fairly innocuous question but I knew why she was asking that and if I'd said, yes, she was a Christian, then the response would have been, oh, well, it's fine then, because, you know, she's in heaven and she's with Christ and you'll see her again. Um, but I said, oh, no, she was Jewish. And my friend just said, oh, okay. And it was at that moment, that kind of exact moment, that I just said, no, this is not right. This is not my experience of reality. This is not mm-hmm. my experience of love. This is not my experience of spirit or the divine or, or whatever you want to call it, which is just this kind of inclusivity and this love um, and this wonder, which just kind of seems the opposite of some of the stuff I was being fed. So at that point, I kind of made the decision, right, I think I need to step away from this a little bit. Mm. And that was coming up on 10 years ago. And it's kind of just been this journey ever since then. Do you feel like that? that moment was the moment of true rupture to your map. Because as I listen to you, Gideon, it sounds to me like there were many falling throughs that took place, but maybe that one was a bit of a final one in which you either transposed what you needed from your original map or just added a page, but you kept going. So was that the moment? Like when you when you really think about a moment of departure, is that what comes to mind? Yeah, absolutely. Um Certainly, as you said, one of many and not necessarily the last one. As I said, it's kind of been a journey and there's been things over the last few years as well. But looking at it, if you can point to one single kind of crux moment where the whole thing kind of hinges, it's definitely that. And on a real kind of, not necessarily on an intellectual level um, or even just on an emotional, but a very mm-hmm. deep, this is something coming from my my soul and my mm-hmm. bones Um I just have to, yeah, have to do something about it. As I listen to you talk about aspects of this journey, I'm struck by the experience that you had of hiding something so true and core to who you were as your Jewish roots and having to tuck parts of yourself away. Was that part of what gave you the sight, you know, what I like to call the eye of a poet, um, that began to 
create a sensitivity in you in which you learned to see what was hidden in plain sight in others or in nature. Tell us about the moment when poetry began to free what was hidden in you as well as help you see what was hidden all around you as well. Mm, Wow, what a great question. I'm not sure I've, I've thought about it in those terms before. But I think you're definitely right in a way. And looking at the journey I've taken into writing poetry, you can definitely see it kind of paralleling certain things. Um, I kind of, in a way, became a poet slightly accidentally. It was never something as a child, even as a teenager, that I thought about doing. I wasn't interested really in, in poetry. I always loved writing. And my dream was always to be a writer. Um, but I, I thought about that in terms of writing novels and doing fiction. But I, I kind of eventually learned that that takes a lot of hard work and, and discipline. So I gave that up eventually. But in terms of my poetry, that I think I wrote my first poem when I was 17. So not long after my parents got divorced and uh, I was going through all this stuff at school and very kind of stereotypical way um fell in love with someone at that time had a a relationship (laughs) (laughs) and as it tends to go with with first love it kind of ended horribly and i was just this kind of angst-ridden teenager and uh, this poem just came out and i think a couple of hours after i wrote it i threw it away no so i have no idea whether it was any good or not it probably wasn't Um, but yeah, and then kind of in the subsequent couple of years while I was dealing with my clinical depression, kind of just became a way of expressing myself when, as you say, I was, I was having to hide a lot. Um, I was in this quite, uh, I guess, masculine environment where, you know, you're not really encouraged to share about feelings and stuff at a, at a boys boarding school. Mm. So it became a way of, of getting that stuff out, um, and so, yeah, that, that kept going throughout university, kind of when my depression was particularly bad. Um, but I'd, I never really shared it with anyone because I didn't think it was any good. And as I said, it wasn't something that I was kind of interested in pursuing in any kind of serious way. But then as, as later on in my 20s, when I was trying to pursue this dream of being a writer and struggling to, to figure it all out, uh, I decided I'd, I'd do this master's degree in creative writing um, to try and work on this this novel that, that never kind of materialized. Uh, and for one of the modules, we had to do a discipline that wasn't kind of our main focus. So I, I chose poetry. And so I had to write some poetry for this class and kind of share it in a workshop environment, which was terrifying. Um, but afterwards, my tutor came up to me and said, do you write a lot of poetry, Gideon? I said, no, no, not really. I said, oh, well, you should. And at that moment, it was like something just kind of sparked in me, maybe just at the back of my mind. And from then on, of course, I kind of thought, oh, maybe I can do this. Maybe maybe this is part of something, who I am. And so I, I started writing more and more and then kind of, you know, getting into the craft of it and learning about it. And since then, it's yeah, just become part of who I am and not just a way of expressing myself, but actually a way of interacting kind of with the world and um, kind of discovering the world Mm. as well. Yeah, I'm thinking about the role of resonance in the act of creating something as precious as a poem. You know, the only way I can relate to it is you know, writing a song and thinking about the way that words dance together and create an experience of cohesion and of resonant seeing. Um, You know, I think a lot about the gift of poetry is a gift of creating the kind of resonance that allows us to perceive our reality differently. And In your latest book, Rumors of Light, it's curious that there is kind of a recurring theme of hiding. (laughs) And I I didn't even think that we were going to be talking about hiding already, but (laughs) 
You talk a lot about what we miss when we hide or shut ourselves off and down from the world mm. around us. And I guess I want to know if the experience you had of writing was a way of remembering, like reconnecting, resonating with all these different parts of you, but also with the world. And how did that experience in that moment of having your tutor say that, did you begin to see your work resonating with others? Did you start reading more poetry or just getting feedback? But I know that resonance must have played a role in animating you to continue more than just that tutor. So tell us about resonance and the experience you have when something you've written, a spell that you've cast, actually creates magic in somebody else. Yeah, resonance is definitely something that's hugely important and that did begin at that moment, although it's certainly not a perfect process. And as I'm sure, you know, everyone who, who creates something will, will relate. Even if you do get good feedback, it's, it's not always easy to believe it um, and to keep doubting yourself. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I always believe it when people say good and kind things about me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You mentioned remembering and that kind of struck a chord with me. Um, I think there's a lot of longing for in my work. Um, there's a sense in which I kind of live vicariously through my writing. Um, and what I mean by that is I don't write about rest and peace in these things because I feel incredibly rested and peaceful, but rather because I don't get any rest <laughs> <laughs> and I often feel anxious. I write about connection with nature because most of the time, most days, you know, I'm, mm. I'm stuck at a desk in front of a screen. So there's a real, a real kind of longing there. And I think that connects with people because there's an extent to which part of what it means to be human, particularly in this moment, is to kind of long for something that's been lost, mm. particularly thinking about our connection with nature and how that's been so disrupted for, I mean, for the longest time now, of course. And then our connection with each other as well mm. and how that's been disrupted and kind of fragmented and how the pandemic has kind of accelerated that. So there's all these lost connections, which maybe we're not even aware of on a conscious level, but there's that deep kind of longing within us. And I think part of what I'm trying to do with my writing is to help myself remember, mm. remember those connections, rediscover those lost connections and hopefully not, I think it's important not to think about it in kind of a nostalgic way. That's why nostalgia is so powerful. You know, we, we want to go back to the way things were, right. of course, and we've kind of seen that play out on a political level in recent years. But more in a, okay, so how can we make these connections work in the here and now in this moment, given where we're at? Um, so it's kind of a, yeah, a remembering of that in order to make something of where we are now. Yeah, yeah, it's a powerful spell. And I, I'm using that word intentionally because it does create a connection to, in the present moment, as you just said, that which we are longing for. It opens us up to the connection of longing, that the longing is the connection, the tether to reality or to the unseen reality. And I want to ask you if you'd be willing to read the poem, What Makes You More Alive? because I feel like it's quite a good prescription <laughs> for our time. So would you be willing to read that for us? Yes, I'd love to. Thank you. Oh, it's interesting that you picked this one. I probably wrote this at, at a point in my life um, where I was, I guess, slightly more evangelical. Mm. And so it's kind of this interesting cross-section in this poem of me unpacking things that I was trying to, how do I put that? <laughs> I'll just read it. <laughs> so this is how to be more alive. First, open your arms to your own humanity. Give the gorgeous mess of your entirety a warm welcome, remembering that all of you is loved, free from limit or condition. Second, Drop your heart into a pool of wonder, that sacred healing water found among the stillness, among the trees and the birds and the streams and the hills and the opulence of an unfiltered sky. 
Do not let the screens hem you in. Seek instead the heaven wrought, the spirit woven, all that brightly sings of the abundance. Third, let your love travel beyond all bounds. Let the curtains tear before it so that nothing is left unadored, including the brokenness of you, of us all. Every soul walks with a limp, and not one is unworthy of compassion's embrace. And finally, remember, remember your divine heritage. Remember the holy sacrament poured out for you in the form of a gentle man's blood. Remember that the cold shackles of death could not hold him, could not stop him from coming back for you. One of the reasons I love this poem is because you walk us through a series of gates of opening into wonder, opening into wholeness, um, opening into the courage to love beyond our own fear-based borders, right? Beyond, beyond our fences. And then finally to be remembered to the power of you know, the best of human beliefs, right? That love could be stronger than death, that there could be something more. And, mm. you know, I've been pretty transparent on the show with sharing my own journey of faith. You know, I grew up as a Baptist missionary kid and then joined the evangelical megachurch <laughs> realm and then transitioned into contemplative mysticism and Christianity. And then yep. from that gateway journeyed into a mystical appreciation and love of all traditions. But even those maps in the last couple of years have begun to give way to a place maybe underneath the blueprints. <laughs> it's not past it. I'm not rejecting it, but it's something else. And so yeah. I suppose on, on one level, it, it, it's surprising that I would be drawn to a poem that so obviously references the idea of Christ and of atonement in a way, but there is something so beautiful about the way that you describe it that makes it a different kind of faith. So I want to ask you about how you would define faith. What constitutes what, mm -hmm. what you believe the magic of faith is really, really about? Well, what is faith? <laughs> so really, I just like to ask really easy questions on the show. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sure. Ease sure, sure, you sure. in yeah. to your Monday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> well, to a certain extent, I think I'm in a, a similar place to you in that there's part of it where I just don't know. And I think we need to get more comfortable with saying that. Um, you know, people talk about these sacred three-word phrases, like I love you and I forgive you. I think I don't know should be one of those <laughs> one of those sacred yes. phrases. Um, it's so kind of countercultural in a way because we're expected to know stuff and if we don't know it, we can just kind of Google it and um, it's almost seen as a sign of kind of weakness mm. Mm. where you don't know something or you're kind of unsure, you're in a place of, of uncertainty. Um, but I think part of it, part of faith, maybe even, is actually embracing that and being able to say, I don't know. Um, it's interesting that you, you chose that poem. I kind of wrote it at a time when I was very much kind of making this transition from being an evangelical Christian to whatever it is I am now. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I definitely think the poem is kind of in both of those two spaces at the same time. Um, but really for me, when you boil it down, faith is, well, how do you see the world around you? Mm. What kind of place is this? What kind of world is it that we're living in? What kind of universe are we living in? Is this a good place? Is this a, a beautiful place? Mm. I mean, it obviously is. <laughs> But how much are we paying attention to that? Mm. And maybe thinking about it now, that's that's part of the key. It's definitely something I think about a lot and try to focus on a lot is paying attention. Because there's this idea in, in Jewish mysticism that 
it's not just human beings who carry the divine spark who are made in in God's image. It's it's all things, mm. um, all kind of natural creatures and, and objects. Everything kind of has this divine spark in it. But so of course we find things beautiful and and wonderful, and of course we're we're kind of drawn to nature and, and drawn to other people. It's kind of the the divine spark that's within us, calling out to the divine spark that's that's in everything else. But we have to pay attention, and so maybe that's what faith is to me. It's paying attention to the world around me because it's a good world. Yeah. You've woven together two of my favorite views, one by a poet, no surprise, and then the other by a great philosopher and Jewish thinker, Abraham Joshua Heschel. (laughs) The way that he describes faith as living with awe and wonder. And then the way that Mary Oliver, the poet, writes about, you know, Maybe attention isn't the perfect prayer, but it must be close. You know, it must be close because living with that kind of presence and the ability, again, to see what is hidden, like the divine hiding in in the shape of the ordinary (laughs) is is quite the the opportunity, quite the quite the frame shift. And so I want to ask you about about what what do you believe the role mm. of suffering is in helping us have that kind of lens of being able to see what is hidden, the divine hidden in plain sight? Um, in one of your poems, The Cup You Have, is that the right title? I can, like now I'm going to be afraid that I like, I'm <laughs> okay. making up titles for your poems that aren't true. That's no, okay. But you say, you have this line, you have this line that just... Um, it was so, it just cut right through me where you say, the brokenhearted make the best dancers. Mm. And I'm reflecting on the relationship between pain and beauty a lot these days. Yeah. That there's a suffering that creates a tenderness, that creates a, an ability to perceive, almost as if the anguish of our heartbreak breaks open our perception. And I just want to ask you about that because you've obviously experienced a tremendous amount of suffering in your own life and it has created a certain tender attention that you seem to translate in your poems. But what do you feel or find the experience of suffering to be in terms of the gift side, I suppose? And it's not to say that we, you know, great, love your suffering. I'm not yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to wrap a bow on it and say stupid yeah. shit like, well, God's in control. I'm just saying more... Mm. More, what is the byproduct of it? Because I do think there is one. Yeah, completely. And yeah, as you said, it's yeah. You know, I'm always wary of you know making sure I'm not romanticizing it or something like that. Because when you're in it, it's just the worst. Of course, it is. Right. Right. Um, and you know, life can be incredibly tragic. You know, a few people have said to me that they're surprised at how young I am. <laughs> um, one person actually said to me. They'd encountered my writing or whatever, and they said, I could have sworn you're an old man. So at first I thought, well, maybe I'm giving off some kind of senile vibe um, with my poems. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it ties into this, this idea of kind of what the spiritual journey, the life journey is. Because there's a few different kind of metaphors that kind of are bandied around. And one is the idea of the spiritual journey as, as climbing a mountain. Um, you know, it's it's the Miley Cyrus song. Um, and, you know, the guru is found, you know, in a cave at the top of the mountain. And you can kind of see why, why people see it that way. It's something that, that takes a long time and it's kind of this conscious decision to kind of go on this journey. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's not really been my experience. I think wisdom is... If you want to call it wisdom, I don't know. It's less likely found at the top of a mountain than it is at the bottom of a pit. And the thing about pits is you can fall in at any moment. It's not something that you plan or kind of set off to do. And usually it's something unexpected and something that you don't want. And even a very deep pit, you can you can hit the bottom pretty quickly. And so at the top of a mountain, it's all about how much you can see and you've got this kind of vista mm. in front of you. But when there's, you know, when you can see so many things, what do you choose to focus on? Whereas when you're, when you're at the bottom of a pit, you can't really see anything except maybe what's right in front of you. 
and maybe the gift as you put it is kind of learning to see that often that's that's kind of what we need or we find what it is we need not by striding upwards and looking for the big vistas but more by kind of stumbling around in the darkness and finding some kind of unexpected treasure and it'll probably be really painful at the time um it might take a long time to to climb out or be lifted out and you'd really rather you didn't fall in but years later you kind of look back you think oh yeah i learned i learned that or i became that um or i'm still becoming that because of those kind of pits i fell in and if i have any kind of spiritual insight or, or anything like that it's not because of climbed a bunch of mountains or because I have any kind of innate intelligence or insights because of yeah fallen into a few pits in my life. I love that imagery of almost needing the dark to stumble upon what's right in front of us to move with a different sensory perception, mm. instinctual almost rather than the one and the maps that we tend to make with our minds when we can see everything clearly, when we are up above. And yeah. I'm thinking about the ways in which we culturally create plans for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we're we're trained to do this, right? From the time we're in school. Who what are you gonna be when you grow up? What are you gonna do? Da, 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 da. And yeah. we create this engine that is only satisfied by more achievement, more more of that climbing, more upward mobility. And, you know, in the West, it seems we have such a sickness of that, mm. of having it figured out, knowing what it is we're doing, planning everything. This is who I am. This is what I do. And this busyness, this doingness, this achievingness misses out on the wonder yeah. of the pause or the stumbling around in the dark. It does, we see that as problematic. We see that as like, oh, if you're stumbling around in the dark, then you've taken a wrong turn. You've gotten lost. You're not supposed to be down there. So you have an entire section in your new book that's dedicated to Sabbath and rest. Yeah. And one of your poems <laughs> that I love is called Unseize the Day. <laughs> and it's so... It's so perfect because of this symptomatic workaholism and obsession yeah. <laughs> with outward achievement. Um, I want to ask you about unseizing the day and how it is that, you know, obviously through the pandemic, we've been forced to do this, but how do, how do we work to unknow work? Yeah, I kind of want to blame Instagram for a lot of this. <laughs> <laughs> I want to actually, can we just blame Instagram yeah. for all our problems? Because I, I think it would be, yeah. I think it would be appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's really helped and social media generally, I guess. And Disney, Instagram and Disney. It's kind of helped this, create this culture where we're kind of, <laughs> we're told you can do anything you want to do and you mm. can be anything you want to be. And if you can dream it, you can do it. And you just got to work hard and you can achieve whatever you want. It's kind of like this big dream, this big dream culture. And it's just not true, is it? As much as we kind of, <laughs> as much as we kind of want it to be, you can't achieve everything you want to achieve. There'll be some things you can, but there'll be some things you can't as well. Look, I, I could have a dream of being a number one New York Times best-selling author, and I can make that a goal and, and pursue that, but it might not happen. There's a limited number of spaces and quite a large number of people. You know, the truth is most writers will, will never get a, a book deal, let alone write a bestseller. Most musicians will never get a record deal, right. um, never alone make a hit. But that's kind of not what we're told. We're told to, you know, just reach for the stars, reach for the stars, even if you miss, you'll, you'll end up on the moon or, or whatever it is. And that's, as you said, it's created this kind of sickness and this mass unhappiness because the problem with it, and I'm, you know, I'm not against following your dreams or having big goals or anything, but what it does when it's so persistent in our culture, what it does is it makes us tie our worth into that. This is what will make me valuable mm -hmm. and worthy. 
if I become this, achieve this, do this, if I sell this many things, you know, have this many followers, value is wrapped up in these kind of measurements of success. And can I be annoying and, and talk about something Jesus said? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> can I be annoying? Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, so there's this phrase Jesus uses, and it's often as with a lot of things he said, kind of misinterpreted or kind of misused. Um, he's recorded in, in John's gospel as saying, I've come that they have, may have life and have it to the full. Or it's sometimes translated uh, life in all its fullness or, or life more abundantly. And uh, the Greek word he's using there, um, perisos, there's a sense to which it means something that can't be measured, something that's kind of exceeding measurement or beyond measurement so there's a sense to which what what kind of jesus is saying the kind of the divine is found the real stuff of life is found the joy is found that the goodness is found in the things that you can't measure mm. so if you can measure it then you shouldn't really be wrapping your life around it because wealth can be measured we love to measure it success can be measured. We measure our, our ages. Uh, we measure the way we look. Um, we have all these kind of measurements and, and metrics that we're given by culture and, and society about what, what a good life is. But something that's beautiful can't be measured. You can't measure beauty. You can't measure wonder. You can't measure kindness. You can't measure fun. And gosh, fun is we don't take fun seriously enough. It's so important and should be. <laughs> um, Agreed. You know, spiritual teaching should focus more on fun. I think it's what draws me to mystics, particularly um, Sufism. Um, there's a mm. kind of a sense of mischief uh, among people like Rumi and, and Hervez. That's quite attractive to me. But anyway, mm. if we want to get to kind of the real juice of life, we've got to focus on the things that, that are immeasurable because when you make your life about the immeasurable, there's always going to be abundance. Mm. When you make your life about the immeasurable, there's always going to be more than enough. Because mm. of course, I mean, how could there not be? It's like uh, to be equally annoying and use mm -hmm. another Jesus story, but it's like the idea of loaves and fishes, of there being more of more of more than meets the eye. There's yeah. so much more hidden everywhere around us. And I have to share with our public here that one of the, if not the first way that we connected was actually about gardening mm -hmm. and, yeah. and roses, our shared <laughs> love of roses. And you, you have a line where you say that you dream about roses too much and yet not enough. Yeah. <laughs> and so I want to ask you about your garden and why gardening is a sacred practice for you in that immeasurable way you were just describing. Yeah, so, so gardening is, I kind of think I stumbled on it accidentally. Um, I don't know, well, there's probably some people who aspire to be gardeners, but it wasn't something that was part of my life in any kind of way until probably my late 20s when I was lucky enough to get a garden of my own. I think why it's, it's become so important to me I think it relates to what we were talking about a minute ago with lost connections and how so many of us are, are living this lifestyle, often, you know, not out of choice, but because of the pressures of, and the way the systems around us are designed, where we're so uh, disconnected from nature and from kind of the world around us. And what gardening does is it, it reconnects you in a really intimate, physical way. Mm to the world around us and to the wider natural world and the, the passing of the seasons and the physicality of everything. You know, we're, we're so often stuck in our heads. But mm -hmm. um, I think it was the writer, Michael Pollan, who said, working with the flesh of the world is a brilliant cure for abstraction. In other words, it's something that kind of, it takes us out of, <laughs> takes us out of our minds and out of ideas and, just yes, this is this is kind of the stuff of life, and um, so it's very kind of healing in that way, and healing in lots of other ways as well. I mean, we shouldn't need scientific studies to tell us how 
good being out in the wider natural world is, but you know, there's thousands of them for our mental and our, our physical well-being. And as someone who's kind of suffered from from mental health problems, you know, being outside, working in the garden, just doing stuff with your hands, you know, stuff in which you're kind of adding to the the physicality of the world in which you're taking part in in creation, which is this kind of continuous thing. Um, yeah, it's brilliantly healing and therapeutic. Yeah, there's so much involved in the practice of hands in the dirt and planting of seeds and mm. the trust and faith of living with awe and wonder to have the kind of attention that you have described as comprising what you believe faith to be is to to be part of that making, to be part of that wonder. Yeah, absolutely. And another kind of crucial thing it does is just slow you down and make you think about time in a very different way. We've kind of been programmed to expect the the quick result and kind of the the instant hit. Um, and if we want something, we can have it right away. But if you want to plant a tree or create a flower bed, that's going to take years and years and years, and it might not work. So you think about time in a whole different way. Mm. You see the kind of the importance of of waiting and allowing things to happen in their own time. Yeah, of unknowing. Yes. <laughs> unknowing our own timelines yeah, for things. Exactly. Yeah. I'm very challenged by that. I mean, I really obviously am. It's funny. It's like, yes, I have a show called Unknowing and I fucking hate unknowing. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably why we we create out of our need, as you were describing. It's like you write about rest because you need mm. it. I, I'm focused on unknowing because it's so hard for me. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you in closing if you would be willing to read Doubts, but I also want to give you permission to read something else if there's another poem that you feel you'd like to close with. But that was one that stood out for me that kind of blessed the journey of unknowing and letting go as, as you were just describing. Yeah, I'd love to read that. Just give me a minute while I find it. I feel like I should know where all my poems are or if I was a proper poet, I just, I just kind of know them. <laughs> I just, oh yeah, doubts. And then just be able to read it off by heart. Well, yeah, but you got quite a lot of them. So it's okay. Yeah. So this is doubts. You don't need to hide from your doubts. Let them come to you. Let them fill you with their peculiar magic and show you that the path is generous, that it will accept more questions than you could possibly ask. Let your uncertainty be the teacher you always needed, the one who smiles with a glint in their eye and answers, maybe. I'm so grateful to you, Gideon, for your friendship, but also for your presence as we were just hating on social media. <laughs> <laughs> your presence on social media is quite magical and other. And I know that you have blessed the uncertainty and the unknowing in me. And I certainly know that you have done that for hundreds of others um, as well. And I just want to thank you so much for being willing to be on the show today and share so openly about your own unknowing and your gift well thank you thank you so much again for for inviting me it's it's been a pleasure and you know i know you're doing exactly the same thing for a lot of people thanks gideon so we're learning how to see with the eye of the poet the ability to perceive what is hidden in plain sight. Here are a few pieces of true North wisdom that I'm taking with me from this conversation. The brokenhearted make the best dancers. Through the course of this conversation, it became so abundantly clear that there is something sacred that suffering opens up in us. That's not to say that suffering is good or that it justifies it. No, it, it's shitty, it sucks. But somehow, as a byproduct of the suffering that we all endure as human beings in one way or another, something else opens up within us, a depth, a capacity to perceive, an ability to be more present 
and attentive to the beauty, the ephemeral beauty of life itself. Again, this doesn't justify it or make it something that we need to try to dress up or wrap up in a bow, but I do think it allows us to see that there's a hidden gift in the midst of our pain. The vulnerability of our pain allows us to become vulnerable to beauty. Maybe it allows us to become better creatives. The brokenhearted make the best dancers, as Gideon said. Second piece of True North wisdom. I loved the line from one of Gideon's poems, Unseize the Day. <laughs> I just think that is really helpful because we wake up with this sense of urgency every day and overwhelm, and the hamster wheel has us off to the races. And in all of that busyness, we often miss the wonder, the awe of being present to beauty in the menial, in the ordinary. And in slowness, slowing down does not make you lazy. We need to unhitch our self-worth from this idea of constant productivity. If you're not familiar with the book, Laziness Does Not Exist by Devin Price, pick it up, read that, and then read Gideon's poem, Unseize the Day, and make that a daily practice. Final piece of True North Wisdom, the invitation that I felt to consider what is hidden in plain sight. And I don't just mean this about, you know, notice the light and the beauty as it strikes your coffee cup in the morning. That's all fine and good. But to consider all that is hidden in plain sight in the stories and the hearts of the people around me, to recognize that there is so much more than meets the eye. There's so much more going on than what appears to be happening at surface value. If Gideon was carrying a whole secret world, if I also relate to that experience of carrying a whole secret world inside of me, how can I become the kind of person that begins with that assumption, <laughs> that recognizes that I don't know, and that the opportunity before me in every relationship is to unknow what I think I know about the wonder, the mystery, the untold stories of the person before me. That's it for today's episode of Unknowing. If you found this conversation inspiring or if you've been enjoying the past seasons of Unknowing, I want to invite you to become a patron, to recognize that it's my great privilege to bring you these conversations, but that they are not free to make. And so consider the value of these conversations in your life. And I invite you to check out my Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash or you can find it through unknowing.org. And become part of the unknowing community. As a patron, you receive behind-the-scenes content, access to the unknowing learning platform, and so much more. And in closing, as you well know from last season, I like to end each episode with a quote. Last season, it was a quote from the poet Rainer Maria Rilke. But for this season, I want to leave you with a quote from one of my favorite authors, Rebecca Solnit. Leave the door open for the unknown the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from, and where you will go. <laughs> <laughs>